Let me tell you a story. We got it, Lori Joe. Yay! Yay! Awesome. <laughs> you guys have a great day. You too. This is so cool. It's like yeah. night at the museum yes. at 2 p.m. This walkway in the front, the bricks are actually made from when they dug out the cellar when they built the home. A lot Say of polka. polka, written by Austrian immigrant Ferdinand Zellner. All these differences have like prepared me. I am intrigued by your life. <laughs> All right. I just think that it's an important story. You know, people didn't ever talk about. You said you've been a librarian before, and you've done a lot of different things. Yeah. I believe 100% of God or spirit or whatever gives you these gifts. Hey there. Welcome to The Nomad Narrator. I am your host and creator, Emily, an award-winning audiobook producer, director, narrator, and general lover of all things audiobook, but most especially, I would say, the people that are the real magic makers of this little niche of the entertainment industry. I know that technology has had a lot to do with the huge growth in audiobooks over the last 10 or 15 years, but I think that what keeps those listeners coming back again and again is that feeling of connection with another remarkable human, because there is really nothing like that feeling of being told a really good story. It's something that humans have been doing since prehistoric times and throughout the centuries, gathering around the fire at night and and whether it was to share information or feelings or maybe keep the kids occupied or uh, get ready to sleep and, and to dream, um, we'd tell each other stories. And I think that for thousands of years, this has sort of been baked into us to crave that kind of connection. And I think that one of the reasons that audiobooks have been developing such a loyalty from listeners and why once people start listening, they get hooked is because audiobooks kind of take us back to and get closer to that core experience um, more than anything else. And there's a real focus and an intimacy to audio that lends itself so well to that thing that we all sort of want deep down in our DNA of of another person really taking the time and attention and care to just tell us a story. And then when it comes to who those people are who have gone into this work as narrators, the people who want and love to fulfill that for us, it just it's little surprise to me that they would tend to be an extraordinarily interesting and engaging and often warm and welcoming group of people. So that is what I've loved most about working in audiobooks is the people that I get to work with. They are my favorite part. And it's what I've created this show for is to get to share those people and their stories and where they come from and how everything has shaped them. And so I'm really excited to get to share the next Keystone episode with you today. If you've been following the pod so far, you'll know that our Keystone episodes are sort of like the main course of the Nomad Narrator. And they do take a lot of resources and time for me to produce. So we have some other yummy side dishes like Coach's Corner, et cetera, to round things out in the time between when I can get one of the Keystone episodes ready to, to air. But these ones are the in-depth interviews, meeting narrators where they are. I go visit someone and we spend a day together and they show me a bit of their hometown and a bit of their life. And then I sort of craft their story into an hour of audio that then we get to share with all of you. So for this one, I don't really have a lot to say by way of introducing my interviewee. It's all sort of part and parcel of the episode, so I don't want to spoil any of it. So with that, I will just say that without any further ado, the Nomad Narrator presents to you Lori Joe Daniels.
This is not the story you were supposed to hear today. But who's to say what is or isn't supposed to be? 34 years ago, a toddler in Kentucky lost his vision. Bullied growing up, he spent all his time alone practicing violin. In time, music would take him across the country to an exciting life in California, where he'd one day be paired with a service dog in a nearby training program, and at their graduation meet the kind lady who raised his guide, who said to let her know if they ever needed anything. In 2013, I was newly married and teaching at a residential arts camp outside of Los Angeles when a wildfire began to spread across the mountains. The whole town had to evacuate. And without any ability to change our scheduled flights, my husband Chris and I were 3,000 miles from home, with no place to stay, no money to pay for one, and with our dog, no less, a 90-pound yellow lab named Baron. So, we called Tina, Baron's puppy raiser, who came and got us. She and her husband Brian got their Airstream camper out of storage and set it up in the driveway of their suburban home in Huntington Beach. And for a week, we stayed there with them. Chris and Brian playing music, Baron romping around with his brother dogs, and Tina and I sharing stories. A few years later, Tina's father passed away, leaving them a house on a lake in Arkansas. Chris and Baron and I would come to visit after they relocated, staying in the Airstream again that would come to inspire this project. And eventually, the four of us would gather under a tree by the water to scatter Baron's ashes together. Toddlers aren't supposed to lose their sight. Wildfires aren't supposed to evacuate towns. And loved ones aren't supposed to leave us. But if everything in life was always as it's supposed to be, Maybe the best parts of it wouldn't be at all. Hi there. I'm here to pick up an order for a friend. Oh, it looks like it's right there. Yes. Lovely. Thank you so much. What is this bakery? Can you tell me a little bit about it? Damara Baker, who is the CEO of the place, and basically she started this building and the mission along with it to help people with disabilities. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. No, you got it. Okay, go. And we're audiobook narrators, so we know. <laughs> They're supposed to and basically get them the on-job skills to be successful in other fields. Nice. I've tried your all's bread, by the way. It's amazing. I don't live around here, but yeah. I come stay with so, our friends. I do, so now I'm going to have to yeah. start come trying. Well, thank you. Have a great day. Five years ago, I attended an audiobook narrator's retreat in Rhode Island, where I was introduced to Lori Jo Daniels from Missouri. We quickly bonded over both having husbands with service dogs. Lori Jo also has two kids, Lily and Alex. When the pandemic hit shortly thereafter, she became a digital lifeline, one of those online friends we all needed in the early days of quarantine, just to remember the world still existed out there. We didn't talk a lot, but over time, we'd keep checking in. She moved out of Missouri. I started a new job on the publisher side of things. By the time I reached out to see if she'd like to be interviewed for the Nomad Narrator, I was shocked to plug her address into the GPS only to find she now lives about 15 minutes away from Brian and Tina in the rural Ozarks of Northwest Arkansas. The 
first used in 1937. The term Northwest Arkansas refers to a handful of towns dotted across several counties in the very northwestern tip of the state. Fayetteville, the region's largest town, was initially founded in 1828, when settler George McGarra built a homestead for his family. And fun fact, you can still go strawberry picking today at Rivercrest Orchard, a farm operated by McGarra's great-great-great-great-grandson and his wife. The area was originally called Washington, but in 1829, in order to avoid its getting confused with another nearby town called Washington, it was renamed Fayetteville, after Fayetteville, Tennessee, which was itself named after Fayetteville, North Carolina, which was originally named after the French General Lafayette, who helped America win the Revolutionary War. Today, Fayetteville has just under 100,000 residents, with several smaller towns surrounding it. So even though Northwest Arkansas is the state's most populous region, it still has a feel of wide-open wilderness with the natural beauty of lakes, woodlands, and rugged mountain landscapes. Can you tell me where to go? Do you know? Yes, take okay. a right turn and the light. watch this guy. Ford Transit Connect. <laughs> I you see them secret, everywhere now. It's the only car I've had where I, when I see the ones like it, we do wave at each yeah. other. Yeah. Like, you're in a special club? Yeah. I was excited to visit Lori Jo and get to see this area anew from her perspective. We started our day off right, meeting up with another narrator who lives nearby, Chelsea Stevens, at local brunch favorite The Buttered Biscuit. The conversation and their signature lavender mimosas were flowing as the three of us caught up with each other over shared plates of lemon curd pancakes, chicken and waffles, and, of course, biscuits with cinnamon butter. Then after bidding Chelsea farewell, we struck out in the direction of the museum Laurie Joe planned to show me. We just had to pay a quick visit on the way to Rockin' Baker, the bakery you heard earlier, to pick up Tina's weekly bread club order. And then maybe just one more stop. I like this stuff. All right, I'm going to hop out and see. Spur of the moment up. yard sale. <laughs> hey, so we don't have cash. Do you all do like Venmo? Uh, yeah. Okay. How much for the cheer sign? Ten bucks? How do you turn it on? Well, I think I'm going to drop my offer to five, considering I can't tell if it works and I'd have to buy a plug for it. <laughs> five bucks? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Uh, what's your Venmo? Okay. You want to meet in the middle at seven and a half? No, I want to do five. You already said yes. Mm. <laughs> okay. okay, let me... Sure. Is that you, a baby with a cigar? Yes, ma'am. Is that actually you? <laughs> nice. Well, thank you. If this works out, I'm going to put this in my van. Oh, in that? Yeah. Heck yes. Thank you so much. Sure will. Enjoy. We got it, Lori Joe. Yay! Yay! That is awesome. <laughs> we drove by on the way to pick up some bread, and then we were like, This is one of my favorite parts about being from or being in the South. There is no such thing as a simple transaction. Everything is a conversation. And you learn the most interesting things about people that way. And they tell you the best places to go and the neatest things to do. Now, for an area that feels very rural, there's actually a lot to do in northwest Arkansas. The University of Arkansas brings tens of thousands of students to the area from all across the state, country, and globe. And Razorback sporting events are a huge draw. Locals and visitors alike can also enjoy a day at world-renowned art museum Crystal Bridges, take in a performance at the Walton Arts Center, or check out a wide variety of local eateries. 
The Waltons, America's wealthiest family with a combined fortune of about $250 billion, thanks to the Walmart chain of stores and associated brands, are the area's most prominent residents. In fact, Crystal Bridges was founded by Alice Walton in 2011, is built on land donated by the family, and largely displays gifts from Alice's own private collection, which she wanted to make available to the public. General admission to Crystal Bridges is always free for all visitors. Sam Walton opened Walton's Five and Dime store on the town square of Bentonville, Arkansas in 1950, and that location now serves as a museum of the company's history. Walmart is one of the area's largest employers, along with Tyson Foods and the J.B. Hunt Transportation Company. As of the 2022 census, an average personal income in the area was $35,977 a year. All right, well, we got to get a move on, but this is going to be awesome. Yes, it is. All right, thank you. Cheers. You guys have a great day. You too. Yeah, thank y'all for stopping by. And um, kick butt on the podcast. Thanks, dude. He was all excited about your van. That was great. (laughs) It was cute. Side quests managed, we buckled up and headed out once more. As the part-time operations manager of the museum where we were headed— Lori Jo told me she'd gotten special permission to give me a tour while the facility was closed. We made our way toward downtown Fayetteville. Turn left here in this little section. So I noticed that just being down here, my voice gets a tinge of Southern. Does it? Yeah. (laughs) I do tend to get a little more of a Southern thing. I grew up only two hours from here. And Oklahoma, so like my parents have a drawl. They say wrestling. We, my brother and I just didn't talk like that. I remember growing, like, I, multiple people told me that I sounded like I was from okay, Chicago. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what this place is that we're going I here. I will. This is Headquarters House. Headquarters House. Yes. I'll put this everything down. This is so down. cool. It's like a private tour of a, it's yes. like night at the museum yes. at 2 p.m. So this is clearly the newer part of the house. Let's head to the front, and we're going to go out the front door first. So. Yes, it's very cool. You're going to love this place. Okay. Normally I have two flags out here, the Confederate flag and the American flag, because it is called Headquarters House due to the fact that during the Civil War, it was headquarters alternately to both Union and Confederate troops. Before it was Headquarters House, it was the Tebbets' home. The Tebbets were, he was an attorney and then became a circuit judge in the area. So he's very wealthy. Very symmetrical. Yes, it's Greek revival. It was all about being symmetrical. It was 1852, so we were still all about the Greek Republic and everything. And this walkway in the front, the bricks are actually made from when they dug out the cellar, when they built the home. Wow. They're in such good condition. They've done a really, they've got boards for preservation of this home. Everything in this garden is cared for the same way they would have cared for it in 1852. We have a group here called the Master Gardeners. There's nothing electric. They don't use chemicals that they wouldn't have had back then. I love the porch. It was painted the blue. And in Kentucky, are you, did they do haint blue? Is that a familiar with no, that? No, but I'm familiar with the word haint. Okay, slaves brought that with them from Africa, this belief that spirits can't cross water. So that's why the South is where you start to really see haint blue, because they believed it would confuse spirits. They couldn't cross into your home. There's also the more scientific reason of birds and insects confuse it for the sky. And so like dirt daubers won't make nests in the ceilings of your porch. I tell my tour I have not felt the spirit in this house yet, and hundreds of people literally died yeah. right here. So maybe the hate blue works. Um, the original property went to that street, which is Dixon, to that street, which is College, and not quite to the other street back there, but close. It was four acres originally. This corner is called the Bloody Corner 
Battle of Fayetteville happened right here. Right here. During the Battle of Fayetteville, the Confederates almost won. They burned a lot of stuff, but they didn't win. Eventually, though, they came back and they did take over this area. Then the New Union took it over again. It was like this whole section. Very back and forth. Very back and forth. Lori Joe was an absolute fire hose of information. I was so impressed. I could hardly believe that she'd only been working at the museum for about a month. We continued on inside. Ouch. I do this every day. I run into the furniture. I have, I cannot, it's ADHD walk. This room would have been their actual parlor, but it is set up as an office because in the 80s, there was a miniseries called The Blue and the Gray that aired about the Civil War, and it was filmed in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Gregory Peck played Abraham Lincoln. This room was used as Abraham Lincoln's office, so we've left it, you know, with the Lincoln hat and everything, but this would have been their parlor. The picture over here is a depiction of how they spent their 4th of Julys as a family here in the parlor. They weren't allowed to salute the American flag because they were a Confederate state. So any, they couldn't fly the flag, they couldn't pledge allegiance, they couldn't, you know, none of that. But he was a unionist. And so on the 4th of July, it became a family tradition. They would close up all the blinds, light candles. He'd bring out the American flag. The children would pledge allegiance and he'd read to them from the Declaration of Independence. A few years ago, a descendant of the Tebbets came for a tour. Just thought it would be interesting. They couldn't believe the story because the family still has the tradition and she did not know where it came from. Sadly, they um, were not as secretive as they thought. A Confederate spied them doing this and reported Mr. Tebbets for treason. Um, this letter, the, guy, the man who was sent to come take Mr. Tebbets away, everyone in this area knew everyone, especially the Tebbets, they were wealthy. Yeah. Mrs. Tebbets was loved by people. So he felt so sorry for her and that she would be worried. So he wrote a letter to tell her everything would be okay. Of course, it was all lies. He was arrested for treason. The punishment for that is hanging. While he was in jail there, he wrote to his wife and said, I think I'm going to be okay. I have a premonition that General McCullough, that's who reported him, the only witness, is going to die. Right after that, Battle of Pea Ridge happens. General McCullough is shot and dies in the Battle of Pea Ridge, the only witness. So he is released from jail. It's at that point that they decide they have to leave. They actually had help with a horse-drawn ambulance that people brought here for the kids and wife to pack up, and he got them out of here first, and then he headed up there. All of the furnishings are from the period of 1850s or earlier. They had some nice piano forte. Isn't that nice? <laughs> the Fayetteville Polka, written by Austrian immigrant Ferdinand Zellner in honor of his adopted hometown of Fayetteville. It was accepted for publication in 1856. Becoming what is said to be the first published piece of sheet music by an Arkansan. Arkansan? How do you all say that? Um, Arkansan. That's Arkansan. what it is. I, I yes. never knew that. I, was like, I hadn't heard it until recently. We have a volunteer here who teaches band. And I want to talk with him about having a recording made of it so yes. that I can play it for people. Because we don't have one. And I'd love to hear what it sounds like. Oh, I would too. Now, lucky for us, the Nomad Narrator House Band was able to get me a complete recording of the polka. But first, according to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, Austrian violinist Ferdinand Zellner came to the United States in 1850 as a musician with P.T. Barnum's tour of European soprano Jenny Lind. At the end of Lind's tour, Zellner stayed in Arkansas and became a music professor at the Fayetteville Female Seminary, Mrs. Tebbett's alma mater. The Fayetteville polka was popular at its time, so it very well might have been played in the Tebbett's home. I tried to imagine what it would have been like to be at a party in this room, maybe with Mr. Zellner himself sitting at the pianoforte, the music playing, 
friends and neighbors dancing. Just a few years later, this beloved family home would become a literal battleground, at the heart of a conflict that tore a whole nation apart. This is a diorama. This over here is the house that we're standing in now. Okay. So um, that's the Battle of Fayetteville. I mean, it was right here, and all this happened here. It happened on their lawns. The children, during the other battles, troops would just walk through this area. And Mrs. Tebbets, when they were coming through, would have a barrel filled with water and have the kids stand out by the road with cups to dip for the soldiers, no matter what side they were on. That's why she was so well-respected, yeah. you know? It really puts things into perspective. Had, I had a moment, I've had like one moment in my life where I really thought about what would it be like if my home was war-torn because mm -hmm. it's such a foreign concept to mm -hmm. us. I went downtown to try to find my friend and give her a megaphone. Yeah. And um, the way that they had things kind of set up was there was this square and everyone was kind of like centered there. And uh, and they had a big mural of Breonna Taylor and flowers everywhere and stuff. And so for like months, people were gathering there and she was there. And it took me like 10, 15 minutes to walk over to the square. And when I did, there's like a I don't know if you've been to Louisville, but there's a big stretch in downtown on like 4th Street. And it's got sort of like a hard rock cafe and different restaurants and bars and things. And there's a pedestrian plaza in the middle of it. And when I was walking down the street, it was starting to get dark out. And it was almost all the way dark. Mm -hmm. But the, the lights weren't on, right? Because okay, yeah. they'd like shut power down in different places or something and there was a perimeter that they had set up around the main like the police had set up this concrete barrier perimeter and there was a a, a curfew in place that you were supposed to be off the street by I guess it was like 8 p.m or something okay, and yeah. it was it was like 7 52 I am not good with time yeah and and so I'm walking and I'm just like first of all I learned that I use laughing as a coping mechanism because mm -hmm. I could not stop laughing and mm -hmm. I was scared. I'm like the only person out. There's no one around. And I looked down 4th Street Live and it was just filled with police cruisers. But they weren't just police cruisers. It was like National Guard Humvees and it was like it was like it was like an army and yeah. they were in the dark and all their lights were off but people were sitting in them just waiting for I guess eight o'clock mm -hmm. to hit and then they were going to like roll out. And I walked past that and it was like, I mean, this is my home. I've walked down this street with my grandmother and like we did mm -hmm. choir concerts here in this mm -hmm. plaza. And now there's an army in there mm -hmm. waiting to like 
police the citizens. Yeah. It's so, yeah. And I just can't imagine what that would be like in yeah. my own backyard. Yeah, I mean, it's it was different... so bad. They were rushed away in a horse and buggy ambulance to yeah. another state. It's really crazy to think about. And, and to think that almost everything was destroyed, this house still is standing. Um, so yeah, the front lawn was a huge part of the battle. Um, since this room wasn't part of the original building, they've used it to kind of dedicate to the education system of the area. A little before the war is when they started looking for a place for a land-grant university in Arkansas. And a, the way it would work in every state when they were doing that, the cities would buy for, I want it here, I want it in the city, and they'd have the big prominent members come you know, and say, this is why we need it here. And Mr. Tebbets was a big part of getting the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville which completely has changed everything about this part of Arkansas, yeah. you know? Um, this particular area was extremely progressive as far as education went. We had the very first public school in the state of Arkansas, but when they opened it up, it wasn't just a public school, it was a public school for the freed slaves and their children. And there were Native American children also at the time. Um, you know, the Trail of Tears came through here and for a while, a lot of tribes actually settled in Northwest Arkansas. So for me, being from Oklahoma, I got tunnel vision that this is where the Trail of Tears ended, this is where the Native Americans are. And then I move over here and I'm like, oh yeah, well, yeah. of course, they settled here as well. Yeah. And they were like the rich family, you can see just from these portraits, they were incredibly well off. Um, but that also brings me to another part of history people don't talk about, is the fact that well-off Cherokee and Creek and Choctaw they're all from the South before they got pushed up here. They owned land, they had slaves. They brought their slaves with them on the Trail of Tears and then they'd settle here or in Oklahoma and they still had their slaves. Um, when the emancipation happened, both the Cherokee um, and the Creek nations granted their freedmen tribal status. So there are black freedmen. There's a big controversy now because in the 30s there was the Dawes Rolls and everything else and now, well, you don't actually have a drop of Cherokee or Creek, so they're no longer on the tribal lists. Even though when their ancestors were freed, that's the only culture they knew. They were born into the Creek or the Cherokee culture. So, God, they've lost their heritage like it's two just, times yeah, over. I just think that it's an important story because we grew up with like, well, you know, people didn't ever talk about that these the Native Americans had slaves because they were so oppressed. But being oppressed doesn't mean you don't also oppress. The Tebbets were unionists in the midst of the Confederacy. They supported abolition. They lost their home and quite nearly their lives for their beliefs. The Tebbets also owned three slaves. They were wedding gifts from Mrs. Tebbets' grandparents. The law at the time said you could not free a slave. You could only sell them to someone else. So they kept them. And there are records that these three people labored in the Tebbet house and on their farm. I wonder what each of those three enslaved people saw when they looked at Mrs. Tebbets. Or what her child saw as she was handing them cups of water to give out to people who wanted to destroy their family. And I wonder what she saw when she gazed into the mirror at the end of the day. People are complicated. No matter which way we're looking at them, we've never quite got the full picture.
So you've only been in Arkansan for like less than a year, just, right? Just under a year. So what brought you here? Um, I left Oklahoma in 2000. I was 24 years old with my first husband who was from Connecticut. We moved to Connecticut. It's where I had my children, it's where I got my divorce, where I met my next husband. I was there for 14 years. We came back to Oklahoma. My ex-husband passed away. And so we wanted to be close to my family because of my children. So Oklahoma is where I started my audiobook career. Um, the education system is really messed up. And we needed more accommodations for my oldest kids. So we moved to Missouri. Still in this general area. But it just didn't fit. It, we just didn't like it there. Chelsea Thebans. I'd already moved down here and I'd come to visit. And I'd been here a lot growing up. It's close to where I grew up. My ancestors are from here. Um, so I always kind of liked it. But coming down to visit her, I was like, man. I really like the energy here. And when you say here, you mean just Northwest Arkansas? Northwest in Arkansas, general. yeah. So like right now we're in Fayetteville, but yes. it sort of encompasses like Springdale and Bentonville and a couple Rogers. of these. And what relationship does Northwest Arkansas have to the Ozarks? It is the Ozarks. It is the Ozarks. I mean, the bulk of the Ozarks is in Northwest Arkansas. Gotcha. Okay, so we're in so the Ozarks. we are sitting in the Ozarks. We're in Fayetteville. Northwest Arkansas is its own whole little region, very culturally sort of cohesive, yeah. this little corner of the state. And I think the mountains had a lot to do with that because in the past it really separated this area. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a lot of similarity between the Ozarks and Appalachia. Oh, absolutely. So my family, um, Trice, the family trees, and um, they, they were like North Carolina, Tennessee area, Kentucky, and they started coming down farther, ended up in Southern Missouri, Northwest Arkansas, and then Oklahoma. They came here and they're like, this is like home, but also they left Appalachia for a reason. Then we had the Trail of Tears that came up through here, yeah. um, settled here. We had a lot of like a confluence coming from different areas because we're farther out west. And so yeah. it was getting populated later and stuff. So I think that might have been where a lot of the change came in. There's something about this area that to me feels much more like the west than I realized. Like there are the old tiny like You expect them to have stores. like... Hitchpick posts out front. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I noticed... All the little towns have, are like that around here. Yes, very I noticed that. And, and growing up, I thought of Arkansas very much more as the South than the West. And see, I didn't think of it as the South. I thought of this area as the Midwest. And then moving, leaving it for, and going to New England for 14 years very totally different. has changed my perception. Yeah. I used to be embarrassed that I was from Oklahoma. It was the 90s when I was in high school. It's all, oh, Garth Brooks, Reba McIntyre, you know. And when I got to the Northeast... I started taking a lot more pride in it. And I started being proud of my middle name, Laurie Jo. I hated that because I sounded like a hick. And then I got north, people were like, it's really quaint. And that's why I made a conscious decision when I started doing audiobooks to use Laurie Jo because it had like a comforting sound to it that I had never heard with my own ears before of my own name. But it's the perception is just totally different having been removed from it for so long. Perception can be such a funny thing especially when you know there's something a little different about your own. I asked Lori Jo what it's like for her to be a neurodivergent narrator. The hyperfocus that comes with ADHD, it gives us tunnel vision. So being in the booth, we can put everything else that's happening outside the booth out of our mind and focus on our work. And I kind of feel like, I feel proud that I can. Like, that's how I feel about this career. I've had so many jobs because... Life things happen, and then I can't stay on track. But it's like all these differences have, like, prepared me for a job where I sit in a box by myself and read. 
yeah. <laughs> and, and thoroughly love it. Yeah. Like many people, however, who go undiagnosed until later in life, the road to answers has been a painful one. It started early, with a pervasive sense of always being too much, too loud, too needy, too sensitive, until the decades of constant striving to tone herself down for others started to catch up. When I actually had my ADHD diagnosis, I was sent for an evaluation for hypochondria because I had spent three years having tests done to figure out why I was having pain, why I was having dizziness, all these medical reasons. And the eventual diagnosis of fibromyalgia, which I knew was gonna be, because I, I don't ever have abnormal results on medical tests. So it, it's a rule out diagnosis. They can't test for it. They have to test for everything else. And that includes making sure that the pain is not in your head. And Which is messed up to me to begin with because pain in your head is real pain. The way that got me less irritated by that whole thing is it helps them know how to treat the pain. Because if it's a physical injury, that's going to be treated different than the psychosomatic things you get from anxiety and depression. Because you do get those things. You get tension. You get nerve pain. And mine are so all over the place. It got to the point my husband would laugh. Because I'd get all my blood tests would be normal. All of my scans, normal. Here's my husband with cerebral palsy going, this isn't normal. You shouldn't be feeling like this. Had it not been for him, I would have just been discouraged and said, nothing's wrong. One day, it was my first anniversary with my husband. We had this big plan. We we're going to go to the theater that weekend. I came home from work and I was having a lot of pain in my side. But it's just getting worse. And finally, he, who never, nothing's ever an emergency room situation for Dan. Everything's calm, but he's like, I think we need to take you to the ER. I'm like, it's going to be pointless because I've been to the ER many times where they sent me home because nothing was wrong. So I'm sitting in the ER and um, the nurse is over. She's, we're going to get an ultrasound. We're waiting for the results. And she even was like, I think it's probably just an ovarian cyst. And I'm like, see, that's what I thought. Waiting, waiting. And I'm saying to him, I'm rooting the whole weekend. Let's just leave. He made me stay. And they come back to me. And the nurse looked surprised to tell me they needed to prep me for the OR. I was also told my whole life, anytime I was hurt, that's not that bad. You're fine. You're fine. Because a lot of my pain was invisible. I have um, some connective tissue issues that cause all kinds of pain. So people in our industry, during the pandemic, people, everyone started talking more about these things. You know, I was so vocal about my hysterectomy and all the things I was going through. And because that was what I needed at the time. I was fired up. So I'm like, I'm going to be vocal about this. And um, I had multiple people... People that I didn't even necessarily know really paid attention to my Facebook page. I'd not had online conversations with thanking me for the things I posted, like telling me they'd been sick and they were, didn't want to talk about it. And I'm like getting teary because this is a hard one for me to even admit, but I am so, I'm so proud that people feel that way about me. You know, I always thought that too much thing, but I'm learning, I'm meeting people and finding out that that too much is just right for them. I live in a home that is filled with musical instruments, mostly the kind with strings. We've got guitars, mandolins, violins, you name it. And the really neat thing about string instruments is the way that they resonate with each other. Whenever Chris is playing and hits a note just right, the whole wall of other instruments just kind of sings back. They catch each other's vibe, literally. The frequency of the note makes the other strings vibrate. Funny thing is, people are kind of the same way. When we start living in tune with ourselves, it always resonates with others. 
So you basically, you came here because you no longer had to be in Missouri for the kids, Mm -hmm. and you decided that you wanted to stay in a similar area, though, because even though the kids are grown, Mm -hmm. they're in this area, and you wanted to be near. And You know, my my mom's still in Oklahoma, Okay, so I've got family nearby, and it's just cheaper. When we bought our house, we had to bid way over asking to even get it, Yeah, but it's our final home, and... Mm -hmm. And then I got lucky and started dating someone in construction, so I'm going to have somebody to help me. Okay, so um, I would like to go a little bit of somewhere with that, okay. if you are willing. Okay. Because I know that you and I, <laughs> we've had lots of conversations. We're spectrums when it comes to relationships. Yes. <laughs> Let's say that. Um, we've had a lot of conversations about this yeah. because I am intrigued by your life. <laughs> All right, because uh, just a little bit of background, like... I was raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. I'm very um, sort of private when it comes to intimate things. Mm-hmm. And I have like only ever even really dated my husband. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, <laughs> on the opposite end of this spectrum, so to speak, well, tell me a little bit okay. about, yeah. <laughs> so um, just before the pandemic is when I approached my husband to talk about maybe becoming polyamorous. Um I was raised very strict as well. Church of Christ, so conservative, we weren't even allowed to have instruments. All acapella, like we're talking very conservative, no dancing, no alcohol, um, to the point that um, my family wouldn't even toast my cousin's marriage at the reception because even having water in their glass would appear. So I clearly did not fit in with the rest of my family. (laughs) But like, so I'm adopted. From births, and they were really great parents, and I had a great older brother, and it was really great, but I was always a lot. This is where I get this, I'm too much, I'm a lot. My mom is very shy, very private, very anxious. In second grade, I came home with a note because they wanted to test me to be in the gifted program, and my mom got scared. Because even if it was something good, if you were different, it wasn't good. Yeah, actually, and I never thought about that, but yeah, I was just always different. So how does this start to manifest? So how long have so, you been married to the to your to Dan? Husband? I yeah. got married in 2015, and we met in 2012. So it was like four years mm-hmm. that you were together Before as sort I, of more yeah. a more traditional arrangement until right. you came to him and said, yeah. <laughs> um, "I actually had gone through a divorce. I'd been married for 13 years to my first husband. I got married at 19. So then I had this freedom when I got divorced and." had thought to myself, I don't think I'll ever want to be monogamous again. I like the freedom of just having different experiences and different people in my life. But then I met Dan. And I I was like, this man is, I won't give him up if he doesn't want to be monogamous. And I had not at that point heard of polyamory. I just was, had heard of like an open marriage or something. And I that's just very so different. So let me clarify something though. What is the difference between polyamory and an open mm-hmm. relationship? The umbrella term is non-monogamy, and there's multiple different types. Open marriage, that typically means that you don't have relationships with other people. When you talk about polyamory, it's, by definition, it means multiple loves. It does get really complicated because it's actual relationships. I guess, you know, people see sex on a different level. Different people see it on different levels. It is just a physical thing. Falling in love with somebody else is a whole different story. For both of us, that is way more intimate and, and dangerous. So I was terrified to bring it up to Dan. But I did a lot of research before I went to him because this is what I do. I go into research mode and wrote a list of why I thought this would be better for our marriage. 
The more Lori Joe explains, the more it strikes me that much of the social stigma surrounding polyamory feels a bit backwards. I frequently see people who choose polyamorous relationships described as immature or self-centered. But I think human relationships of any kind are hard work. It seems like committing to multiple serious partners at the same time would require a much higher, not lower, degree of things like emotional maturity, self-awareness, and good communication. You can't do this and not communicate with each other. It just causes so much conflict. So that was something Dan and I had to work really hard on. We decided to see a therapist together. He's stubborn, so he was determined to make it work. I'm very lucky that he is the most stubborn person on the planet. <laughs> You've told me about this, that yes. like from the time he was born, people told him you're going to die. Yeah, um, he has cerebral palsy. Okay. So he was born premature with the umbilical cord around his neck. So the part for him that was damaged is what communicates with the lower half of his body. And the reason he was told he'd never walk is because that part of the brain that tells your legs to move was dead. And what he ended up doing is something they now do on purpose for kids with CP, but they didn't know about this. He rewired his brain because your brain can do this. But because it's a different part of his brain that's being used to talk to his legs, his legs are not going to be steady. But he managed to figure out a path to tell them to at least take steps. And because of that stubbornness, when he has a problem, he doesn't give up. How do your kids feel about your poly? Like, because they're both adults. Yeah. But when this started, they weren't. How did you approach this with them? Because... I don't want to know about my parents' love life. <laughs> yeah. And so if you feel that went successfully, would they say the same thing? Um, I think they would. There were some bumps in the road with Lily, my older one. Um, we weren't sure at first if we were going to say anything. But Lily, who was 17 at the time, saw OkCupid okay on my phone. And I got a text, angry text. Are you cheating on Dan? So we sat down and we talked about it. And, you know, other than being just upset by the shock of it, she was like, oh, okay. Um, then we talked to a therapist. I'm like, should I tell Alex now? They're 15. And, and they're like, you know what? They're going to sense something's going on. They're old enough. Sit down and talk to him. And Alex was just like, cool. So am I. Because they Polyamory? Kid, yeah. Because the kids these days, they know all this stuff. So it actually opened up the door for them to, to be more themselves with yeah. you. It's getting to be late afternoon. And we decide to pause for a dinner break. We'll each go get something to eat and reconvene back at Lori Joe's house outside of town. Hello, my Hello, friends. Come on in. Hi. This is Dan. It's Dan nice to you? meet you. I, I should have asked if you were allergic to cats. I am, but I like not if I don't touch them. The morning sunshine had given way to a chilly gray day with a light drizzle coming down. We decided to grab some snuggly blankets to wrap ourselves up in while we continued our chat on Lori Joe's covered porch. I think kind of where we left off with stuff was like why you moved here. And then you talked about it being your forever home. And now that I'm here, I can see why. That shed is amazing. I know. That alone, I would have bought this house Yeah, for. that was like... <gasps> Um, so you've got that, you've got this great fire pit, you've got the little tire swing, you've put all your bird feeders up and you've got plants and this is just lovely. I mean, having a nice covered back porch to sit and watch, watch the rain and just, hmm, I like it a lot. So I, I get why you're here. I get it. Um, so 
I really don't know how you got started in audiobooks. You said you've been a librarian before, and you've done a lot of different things. Yeah. ADHD. So, <laughs> not said. Going, Next question. Right. So, it took me 13 years to finish my degree. So, I had retail, I waited tables, I've worked in call centers, all these things. But when I got finished my degree finally, I was able to get a job at a small local library in Connecticut where they didn't require a master's degree. So, I started as part time and I loved it. What happened between then and starting audiobooks? How um, did that road evolve? I had to change jobs when I got divorced. They did, weren't able to offer insurance, and I had to go back into retail. And um, in the meantime, I met my husband, Dan. We were it was supposed to be it was spring break. We were going to go away to Florida, and just intuitively, we just thought, I don't think we should go far. Yeah. So we just went to Boston for a couple of days, and Dan proposed to me. The next morning after we got back, we'd taken the kids to spend the night at their dad's for a night. And then we had the news that he had passed away. While your kids were there? Yeah. He was in hospice. Oh, okay. And so, yeah. So there so, were other relatives there to There help. were. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. They were They were um, 11 and 9. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So um, trying to figure out what are we going to do, uh, he actually was so sweet and he was like maybe we should move closer to your family and then I was able to not work for a little while mm. and while I was not working I was dabbling and wanting to write I was an English major and always wanted to write something but ADHD always stops me from writing and it still did <clears throat> but then I learned out about ACX and it was kind of a magical moment because when I was a librarian my children were very small and I didn't have time to sit down and read to catch up with all the kids were reading. So I discovered audiobooks. And I loved them. And I was I would think to myself, I think I could do this. I would love to do this. I'd be good. You know, no, that's ridiculous. For those who are unfamiliar, ACX is the Audiobook Creation Exchange, an online platform where narrators can audition for independent audiobook projects. A lot of narrators get their start with ACX. Lori Jo shared a bit more with me about her early career, starting out with a coach who was a poor fit, getting scammed by a fake project, the usual speed bumps. She said things really started to take shape for her after volunteering at the VO Atlanta convention, where she met narrator and coach Johnny Heller. Once Johnny helped her get a demo recorded, Lori Jo was able to start booking work. But she mentioned more than once just how much it's affected her confidence that neurodivergence and other health issues have kept her from working full-time. I wanted so much for her to see that that's exactly what's beautiful about this career field and why people like her are still a perfect fit. I've never been a full-time narrator either. The way that I've always looked at it, it has afforded me the opportunity to do whatever else I want mm -hmm. because it has a level of flexibility. It has introduced me to like my favorite people in the world. Mm -hmm. It's given me inspiration. Have you ever had this? Like, I feel like whenever I get assigned a book, it ends up being exactly what I needed to read at that moment. I have, and it started very early when I, I was doing um, Spoken Layer. They did a lot of narration of, like, articles from Slate and Huffington Post. And for the majority of my time doing that, I kept doing it because every time I'd get a piece, it was something that spoke to me. I had a couple times where I had to stop recording and just cry. And it was like really cathartic. 
I did a lot of pieces um, about being a parent of a transgender teen, and it was right after Alex came out to me. And, you know, they didn't know. My casting director did not know these things. And it was like, well, because I believe 100% that God or spirit or whatever gives you these gifts. I actually really completely agree with that. And I don't know how it works. I mean, I, I, everyone's got a different theory, but too many things have happened in my life that have been... I think it has to do with the way we see the world. Because some people see what they need to see, which if they're a spreadsheet person and that's it, they get in the car nine to five, that's how people can be in their bubble. And some people never were in the bubble. And I think that makes us, you know, increase your intuition. Yeah. And maybe that helps us, our intuitions lead us to what's feeling good. And that's what we need. I asked if her move to Northwest Arkansas has felt good and what impact she thinks it'll have on her work. I feel like there's a lot to be said from a fresh start in a new house to be able to have that chance to do something a little bit different. So all of that is just kind of culminating into me being able to now start more actively seeking out more books because I would prefer to do this full time because I really love being in the booth. So uh, what are like some dream projects? Um, you know, I had always, when I initially started this, said, I really hope I get to do YA because I was a YA librarian. And um, I was cast with Emily Ellett in the Peach Rebellion that was produced by Penguin Random House. And that was a little bit of a dream because it was a YA historical fiction Historical like your, fiction is, is like my thing. <laughs> yes. Wait, it gets better. My character was a little girl whose family moved from Oklahoma in the Dust Bowl to California. So she was about six when she left Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl. My grandparents grew up in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl. So this is like a special connection. And I had to do this slight Oklahoma accent because she grew up there, but they were in California now and they were Okies. And her best friend was the daughter of an orchard owner. So there's a lot of this social class structure thing happening in the book, too. And, you know, I'm also really passionate about social injustice. And there were two girls instead of two boys going through these things. And so it was a dream project. And um, I even got an audio file review where they mentioned my good slight Oklahoma accent. I just embodied my grandparents to do it because they just had a slight little accent. And I just loved it. So I would love so much to get more YA or any historical fiction, but I, you know, I love YA. I love YA fantasy because that was just something I delved into so much when I was at the library. As we continue to talk, I glance out the window. We moved inside a couple hours ago and notice the sun is long past set. It's time to wrap this day up. I ask Lori Joe if she has anything else she wants to share before I pack up. Any closing thoughts? I don't know if this is a closing thought so much, but I was thinking about when I was driving home that I wanted to let you know, and I don't know. Like, I just, I feel comfortable doing this with you. I just, like, I was thinking to myself that if this was somebody else, one, I can't imagine very many people I'd spend, want to spend an entire day with. Because I get so overwhelmed. And 
Like when we left the museum, I couldn't believe how late it already was. And then I'm thinking to myself, I also would, with anyone else, be so nervous of, am I going to sound like an idiot? Is she going to edit? And I, but the thing is, like, I don't even have like any worry of, oh, I wonder what this is going to be. But I know 100% with anybody else, I'd be like, ooh, can I trust them with this? So I love that we just have been so comfortable with each other. And let me tell you, there's, I can't imagine ever sticking to a project this intense and not giving up because of my ADHD. So that is also like the whole thing's a hurdle. It's a lot, the expense and the work. And we have extra hills to climb and you're doing it. Well, now we're both tired. Good, because it's not <laughs> fair that I've cried. Because you're like, what are you, the next Oprah? <laughs> There's a quote somewhere out there that the universe isn't made up of atoms, but stories. I think that's close. And I think ourselves and our stories are as varied as the stars. Because just like the explorers of old, we can only really navigate who we are or where we're going in relation to the brilliance of each other. Chris read an article a couple years ago that made him alternate between laughing and occasionally breaking out in a cold sweat. It said that as it now stands, science's best guess of how the universe started was as a highly volatile ball of condensed matter about the size of a peach with a temperature of four trillion degrees. A four trillion degree peach, he'd say. That's it. That's the best they've got. This wasn't the story you were supposed to hear today. That one is still at the heart of a labyrinth, still in search of a happier ending. So this is the one we got. And maybe it was supposed to be that way. Or maybe it's the coincidence on the way to the thing that's supposed to be. Or maybe the real joke is that those are the same thing. And maybe we'll never know. Because we aren't a four trillion degree cosmic peach. With every experience and thought and place and moment and time all layered on top of each other, we need stories. Because we're different. And we need to understand who we are and where we are going. We are not a four trillion degree cosmic peach. We are the universe that exploded into being when the weight of everything got too hot to handle. The trust of my friend feels sacred as I drive through the night, crossing over the lake in the dark, until suddenly the clouds part and there is a moon and there are stars, and there is light dancing on the water. And I'm somehow right here, in the middle of it all. And all is well. The 
The Nomad Narrator is created, produced, and hosted by Emily Pike Stewart for Empyrean Productions, expanding the universe of storytelling. Thank you so much to today's guest, Lori Jo Daniels, for sharing her life, her heart, and her story with all of us. Thanks also to Lori Jo's family for approving inclusion of parts of their own stories, and to Headquarters House for allowing us to tour and record there. A special shout out to our house band, Jake and Mr. Stewart. As you might have guessed after hearing this episode, Mr. Stewart is Chris, and he spearheads the original recording of all of our music here on the podcast. His friend Jake Lieber is a professional musician in Louisville, Kentucky, and we are lucky to have them. If you liked what you heard on today's show, please like, follow, subscribe to, or best of all, share this podcast with a friend. The best way to help grow this show and make more of the kind of storytelling we're trying to do here possible is word of mouth. So if you think someone you know would like this episode, please take just 30 seconds to shoot them a message with a link included. And finally, planning is now underway for a Nomad Narrator cross-country road trip this summer. If you'd like to know more, go to thenomadnarrator.com and sign up for updates. And if you think we should tell your story, please use the contact form on the website to let us know. It's such a treat to get to tell these stories to you. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you on down the road. <laughs>